Welcome everyone. As uh, Claire mentioned, uh, we are New Life, and we are a place where uh, we preach the gospel of grace. And so uh, we do welcome you this morning. My name is Young, if we haven't met yet, pastor here at New Life. And uh, we are in week three of our four-part series in 1 Corinthians. It's a lot of numbers. Uh, United as one. And we're currently going through our first section, which is one in mind. And so you'll see that on screen on the graphic there. Um, so today, as you heard in the scripture reading by Claire, we're reflecting on 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. Um, and we'll be using this passage to help us answer four questions. Okay, so these are the four questions we'll be looking to answer. How can we be saved? What is preaching the gospel? Who can be saved? And how is this different? from what is expected. Okay, so these are the four things that we'll be looking to. So keep your Bibles open to this passage. We'll be kind of referring back and forth uh, between the verses. Um, but how about I pray for us before we get into the sermon? Uh, Father, we come to you because we know that uh, if you could be foolish, your foolishness will be greater than our greatest wisdom. And so we don't come to you with um, a great deal of eloquent preparation or uh, rhetorical skill uh, or great listening or any of these things, God, but we come to you in humility, seeking, Lord, your wisdom. We know, Lord, that your wisdom is revealed in your son, Jesus Christ, and he is who we desire. We know that he is effective. What he's done on the cross is effective for our salvation, but not only our salvation, but our Christian lives thereafter. And so we turn to you, God, for all sanctification. We come to you, God, seeking you for our fellowship, seeking you for our church, God, that you would just bring unity to this church, that you would help us, Lord, to see one another um, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as sons and daughters of the living God, that we might be able to honor one another, that we might be able to uplift one another, that we could pray for one another, and that we could seek to glorify you through it all, God. So would you help us to love you? Would you help us, Lord, by revealing your word to us, uh, speak to us, Lord, in a way that we can understand and help us, Lord, to seek you and love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how can we be saved? Now, as we talked about last week, uh, the church in Corinth, they love to follow you know, their favorite Christian leaders. They really desire to follow their favorite Christian leaders, just like the city around them. You know, they love to throw accolades to the eloquent speakers and the teachers who visit their city. So the church in Corinth loves powerful speakers who are skillful in their speech, who are persuasive in their phraseology, or eloquent in their elocution. You know, they love these things. They love to hear these words that make their head spin round. And these are the powerful speakers that have honed their craft over time, okay? They've given themselves over to the wisdom of this world in order to work on ways to master the arts of human persuasion. So things like their public speaking skills, their body language, the subtle nuances of the types of words that they use, and the stories that incite particular emotional responses from the people that gather to hear them. I remember hearing um, over my time as a Christian from particular modern day preachers when they discussed their skill in preaching, okay, when asked, you know, how do you develop your skills in preaching? What have you done to practice? What have you done to study? And they talked more about studying people that got favorable responses from their audiences, people like 
stand-up comedians, people like professional public speakers, and they would observe their techniques, and they would think about how they could elicit that kind of response rather than meditating on the gospel. The question that has to be asked, though, is how far can this worldly wisdom truly take them? Unless our eyes are opened by God, we cannot truly know Him. We cannot truly receive the free gift of salvation. Every week when I stand up here, I know that it's not going to be a persuasive argument that shifts hearts. It's only going to be the Spirit of God. If this is the case, then why would we believe that the wisdom of this world could possibly help us to grasp the wisdom of God? The wisdom of the world is a merely human wisdom. It's a wisdom that's more like pure logic and rationalism and experience, and it's used to pursue personal glory and success, not only for the public speakers, not only for powerful speakers, but also for the listeners who are looking to gain something for themselves. We're not talking about those who truly seek truth, okay? So wisdom itself is not a bad thing. But merely human wisdom, it's a wisdom that only seeks to gain influence and power and honor for themselves. An interesting little thought puzzle for the church in Corinth and uh, maybe for us as well. Why would we give our allegiance to Christian leaders in this way? If the wisdom of these leaders is mere human wisdom, then it's going to be destroyed, like it tells us here in verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. However, if it's God's wisdom, surely allegiance and honor belongs to God alone then, not to these mere humans, not to these mere Christian leaders. Now, you'll know with me in verse 18, which is on screen now, that the very central event of Christianity is the cross. This is the very central event that we come to talk about every single week, and this is utter foolishness to this world, and yet it is the power of God to those who are being saved, those who have had their eyes opened, is what verse 18 tells us. So why is the cross foolishness? Okay, this might be a little bit of a strange question to ask in a church. Why is the cross foolishness? Like, we're, we're staring at a cross every single week behind me. We wear it around our necks. Why is the cross foolishness? Because it's incompatible with human wisdom. If you really seek to understand what's being communicated by the cross, how does it make earthly sense that salvation comes from hearing the gospel? It makes so little sense that I've heard many times people, including myself, giving themselves over to merely human wisdom in order to, in their minds, make the gospel a little bit more impactful, a little bit more palatable for people to hear. Have you ever done this? When you share about how you came to know the Lord with a non-Christian friend, you know, I can remember several times in the past where I or other people have shared their stories of how they came to Christ, but it becomes more like 59 minutes out of an hour of talking about what a sinner they were prior to knowing Christ and how deeply they were in sin. And somewhere along that 59 minutes, it becomes a little bit of a boast, a little bit of a brag. Not a humble brag, just a really prideful brag. 
where they talk about their lives as gangsters, as drug dealers, as drug addicts, all sorts of things. And then at the very end, they remember, oh, wait, I'm in church. Then I receive Jesus and everything's good, you know, and it's over. The word of the cross is the power of God. It's the power of God because it's God's manifesto to defeat evil, to bring people to a knowledge of who he is, to save completely those who believe. So what is preaching the gospel then? What is preaching the gospel? The gospel, we talk about this each week, is the good news that Jesus Christ died on our behalf on the cross so that we who are guilty of disobedience against God, those of us who turn to God and believe in what Jesus has done, receive Jesus' perfect righteousness by pure grace. We're forgiven and we receive his righteousness so that when God the Father looks upon us, he sees Jesus, his son's perfect righteousness. And again, this sounds like utter nonsense to the world. It's disgusting to a merely human lens to even imagine such a scenario. I've heard it described as everything from senseless Bronze Age fairy tales to cosmic spiritual child abuse, all sorts of different things. It's offensive because it's incompatible with what we and the people of the city of Corinth have grown up knowing to be desirable. Power, glory, honor, success. Which of these things does the Son of God hold when he's hanging naked upon a torture device, abandoned by everyone near and dear to him, labeled a thief, and cursed by his own father? To even try to tell someone the good news of this God who dies, if I can use a modern example, it kind of reminds me of watching the first Avengers movie, where Hulk body slams Loki like a billion times, and he calls him a puny god. And I remember the first time seeing that, and everyone just laughed at him. Is that the way that the world sees Jesus hanging upon the cross, a puny god who dies? The wisdom of the world talks of conquering, not of suffering and of death. At the time that this letter was written, You can imagine that first impressions were everything when it came to public speaking in a place like Corinth. That first visit to the city would set up a public speaker's reputation for the rest of their time there. They would get set up for fame, glory, honor, and success among their listeners if they spoke really well. They would cause their enamored followers to tell others about them so that they would gain even more followers after that as well. So public speakers would often compete against one another. This is the competition of the day. People will be having dinner, and these two public speakers are debating back and forth for applause and approval, depending on what's being spoken, depending on their technique when they speak. Those who can spin the better speech would win. It's like a rap battle in Corinth, I guess, okay? 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 3. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. So here comes Paul. First time in Corinth, 
in the midst of his second missionary journey after coming to know the Lord. It hasn't been that long since his first missionary journey, which was a pretty rough one. You remember his first missionary journey? He was hit in the head with stones by the local townspeople until they thought he was dead. Like, how much would you have to hit someone until you really believe that they were dead and so you left them alone? And during the second missions trip, Paul and his companions had been imprisoned, humiliated, beaten. We're going to be talking about missions at New Life pretty soon as well, John, so I've set that up very well for you. Considering the things that have happened, you can imagine that the person who has dragged himself into the city isn't exactly in the freshest of conditions. They haven't had their morning coffee. He hasn't just walked in out of bed. But the message he brings, it's even stranger. A Messiah, a Savior who has come, the Son of God no less, and he was hung upon a cross and he died. This is not a compelling message for people to hear. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's hard for us to fully grasp just how offensive the message of the cross was at this ancient time. Okay? In our time and context, considering we're at Sezun Church, we're at New Life, many of us have grown up within the church system, and we see the cross as a beautiful thing. In our time and context, we've seen the cross be spoken of in positive terms in churches. We've seen it worn as fashion accessories. We see it proudly displayed as symbols of welcoming, of forgiveness on buildings. But in the ancient world of this time, it's a symbol of criminal punishment, of absolute rejection, the lowest of the low, of public humiliation, of evil human torture. Theologian D.A. Carson, he thinks that a modern-day image that would really work, would bring similar images and feelings to mind today, would be maybe a mushroom cloud over Hiroshima, or maybe the gas chambers in Auschwitz. This is what the cross represents to the people at this time. Paul telling his listeners that this was the power of God would be like a slap in the face to his listeners who cling to the wisdom of this world. This is the opposite of what a traveling speaker would look like, would say in the city of Corinth. Maybe the opposite of what you yourself would expect to hear when it came to a life-changing message. We won't go there in this series, but in 2 Corinthians, we hear that some of the people of the city of Corinth, they say that Paul's physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. Like, this is the report that Paul gets as the guy who planted the church. His public speaking amounts to nothing. Okay, I can really relate, Paul. All right. He could have tailored the message differently for them, but in Paul, in preaching the gospel, he trusts 100% in the power of God working through him, working through the message itself instead of trusting in his own skills in persuasion. I think back to when I was interviewing in order to come here, you know, as pastor at New Life and sending in sermons, and it felt very strange, you know, not only because I was in Melbourne at the time and so I wasn't able to see you in person, but it felt like, what am I doing in this job interview? Am I recording this message to try to convince people, hey, hire me? You know, I'm a great public speaker. Is that what I'm trying to do here? Or am I trying to communicate the gospel? I'm very aware of the irony of having 
you know, great presiders. Every, sun every Sunday, you know, we have Claire, for example, today who has a lot of clarity when she speaks and she's able to communicate effectively the gospel. And I come, and some of you look very confused sometimes when I speak. And I'm very aware of this, the irony of the situation, but the task of the messenger is not to craft his or her own persuasive message. It's to fully and faithfully deliver the message that's already been given to him. So Paul says in verse 4 of chapter 2, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. The goal of all the other public speakers who visited Corinth was to persuade to follow them by whatever means necessary. Whatever they did, whether it was in rhetorical skill or in emotional manipulation, however it ended up, they would try to gain as many followers as possible. But Paul's goal is entirely different. It's the manifestation of the power of God in people's lives. It's the change that we see in the lives of the people here at New Life. That's our goal. Now, you can imagine that the message would not have gone down well, okay? Gas chambers, okay? And so you can imagine, which makes you wonder who then can be shaped, who then can be saved, not shaped. 1 Corinthians 20 to 23. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Paul's talking about those who are wise, those who teach the law, those who are experts at debating. It's not about the profession that they're involved in, though. It's about pride. They're first and foremost in their fields. It's about pride. Do you struggle with pride? Do you struggle with this? Do you believe yourself to be a better Christian than some of the people around you because you understand things a little bit better. Because when you read the Bible passages each week during Bible study, you know what's being talked about. Whereas someone else says, hey, I'm really confused. Do you believe that you're a better Christian? Are you prone to pride? Do you struggle to humble yourself? Because this is the type of person that Paul is talking about. Knowledge of the gospel is less about intellect and comprehension than it is about humility and purity. Only the humble can hear the message of the gospel and receive it as good news because they know they have nothing that they can bring to God. Verse 23 tells us that the Jews asked for signs. They wanted a victorious, conquering Savior who would bring the former glories of Israel back. The Greeks sought out human wisdom, something rational that made sense to them to wrap their minds around philosophies, ways of life, ways to change the way that they live in order to gain something for themselves. What about you? What are the expectations that you bring to our Savior? Verses 18 and 21. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to, the, to us who are being saved. For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, 
God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. So here's who can be saved. Anyone. And we mentioned it in week one. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth as brothers and sisters. He's writing to fellow believers, to those sanctified in Christ. And so there's hope for those with many faults like those in Corinth. He says here in verse 18 that it's the power of God to us who are being saved. He's including the people that he's writing to. It's God intervening on behalf of those that are perishing. It's not by human wisdom, not by understanding and rational thinking that we bring to the table because at the cross, there's neither Jew nor Greek, wise nor foolish, well-educated or uneducated. Everyone has been given over fully to disobedience so that everyone can receive mercy from our God. None of us, then, are in a more advantaged position than anyone else, and it's through his son, Jesus. In fact, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached, like it says elsewhere in Scripture, just as he was pleased at his son Jesus' baptism, just as he was pleased to reveal Jesus to Paul that he might preach the gospel, and just as he was pleased to predestine us for adoption into sonship through Jesus Christ. So how is this different from what's expected? This is what's being preached to the church in Corinth, something so totally against their way of life, outside of their sphere of understanding. And if you look at the people of the church in Corinth, it actually kind of makes sense, though it might be unexpected. Look at what Paul says, verses 26 to 29. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Imagine I'm saying this to you, okay? You're not wise from a human perspective. You're not powerful. You're not from noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. It was a risky move on Paul's part. Do you feel it? Because he's basically telling the people he's writing to that they're not traditionally wise. You're not wise in the traditional sense of the word. If you ever say that to someone, it's not nice. Not many are powerful. Not many are of noble birth. They're a bunch of nobodies that he's writing to. Now maybe the people of Corinth are waiting for Paul to give them a little bit of a criticism sandwich. You know, you, you know when you praise someone after hurting them a little bit? You know, so that the message might be a little bit more palatable. Maybe your bosses do this. Very, very underhanded trick. Uh, but no, Paul goes on to talk about his own weakness instead. His own weakness in their presence. So why? Why does Paul do this? Why does God choose nobodies like you and me? in order to shame the wise and the strong. Though the church in Corinth would look for impressive leaders, hoping to get some sort of residual honor and glory from them, God moves to shame those that the world would consider to be wise and strong. 
And this weakness leads to salvation. You see, in the way that Paul has preached and the people of Corinth, for the people of Corinth, they are living proof of the power of God. These are the people that have changed. It's not the power of powerful speakers. It's the power of God that has changed them. And now they're being called once again, compelled by God to keep to their new identities as God's children, his holy people. They're called to live lives that are holy and pleasing to God, to shape their communities and their own lives around who the Father is, what his purposes are. This is our calling too. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Having your faith based on the power of God rather than human wisdom means believing in the message of the cross for salvation. It means turning away from trusting in ourselves and the human wisdom that we have as ways to God. And we believe in God for our work of the Spirit in our lives. In order to do this, we must humble ourselves. We need to embrace humility, to give up on righteousness of our own in order to receive God's righteousness and to help others to do the same as well. Let me pray for us. This is the word of the Lord to us, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. We know, Lord, that it's not by our own earthly wisdom, it's not by our powers of logical deduction, it's not by rationalism or talking things through, but it's by a move of the Spirit's power that we come to know you. And Father, we need your power in order to humble ourselves. Father, we pray at this time that you would help us to lay aside all the weights of the burdens, all the things that cause us to trust in ourselves, to trust in the wisdom of this world, even to place our allegiance in an unbalanced way in Christian leaders. And we ask, Lord, that you would open up our hearts that we might be able to receive your wisdom instead. We ask, Lord, that it would not be just an emotional response. We ask, Lord, that it would not just be a spur-of-the-moment thing, but that it would truly be the power of God, effective to change our lives permanently, to help us, Lord, to live for you. So would you guide us, Lord, at this time? Would you guide the message of the gospel to our hearts that it might transform us for good? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the many times that we come to you. Transform us, Lord, that we might be sanctified to live as your sons, your daughters. We trust in you. We trust in you for the work of humbling. We trust in you for the work of transformation. Would you do that in our hearts? And we love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.